got a question for you. Do you ever think about aliens? Ever? Like maybe just a little bit. You ever think about them? Think about if there were aliens, what would they look like? Maybe, maybe a scarier thought. Uh, do you think aliens think about you? I don't know. It's a little freakier if you think about it. Uh, maybe there's aliens. Maybe there's something out there that's looking in on our world. You know, it's interesting. That's a thought that people have had forever. They've been thinking that there's people out there or something out there. Sometimes we call it the universe. Sometimes people will call it gods. Sometimes we call it God. There's, but there's people who are always saying there's probably something. If I think there might be something out there, there might be something out there looking in at what's going on over here. They might be thinking about that. So much so that even up until this last month, this was this month in the Congress of Mexico. This is a real thing. There was a guy who claimed to find alien bones that were fully put together, that were never taken apart. These things, these uh, bones, were discovered in Peru. This is literally what they look like. This is from like two weeks ago, a picture they took in the Congress of Mexico. This guy claims that he found aliens. Uh, he found them in 2017 in Peru, but the dating that they did on them, it said that they were dated back to like 17 or 1800 years ago. And it was found like in a bunch of, you know, in the ground and um, just kind of crazy. But I don't know about you, but if that's the weird alien that we found, it's like three feet tall. It's kind of interesting. It, for some reason to me, it looks a little bit like uh, the aliens that we already know. So I don't really know. I don't know if I buy this. Actually, I think I don't buy this. I think this is probably not true. But this guy found them and he turned them over to the scientists. He said, yeah, great. Study them. Check them out. Look at what they are. So after this took place like two weeks ago, the Mexican scientists have started to look at it and they're doing like MRIs and they're doing all these scans on it and they're finding that like, I don't know what this thing is, but it was probably like, it's been this way for a long time. So we don't know if it was an alien or a person or, or I don't know, that's an ugly looking person. So probably not a person, you know what I mean? It's like three feet tall. It's like a kid or something. So uh, no offense. It's, you know, if you're looking at the left and right pictures here, if that's a kid, it's an ugly kid. But um, it's not just the Mexicans who've been looking into this. Um, even in the United States this summer, I don't know if you know this, there was a congressional hearing from this Air Force pilot who said that he not only saw UFOs, but he had obtained some kind of access to not only see the UFOs and their structures, he says that the government's hiding, he also says he knows by personal firsthand experience that there are non-human bodies that were found on these unidentified flying objects. And he stood in Congress, the United States Congress, this summer in July and said, I know what I saw. Like, this is some crazy stuff. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if this is really happening. I know that this happened. Um, and again, another thing that happened this year, there was Chinese scientists who found in these glass beads that were found on the moon, they found little traces of water. And that was so exciting for the scientists as they were thinking, if we find water on the moon, there's a good chance that there is either life there that's hidden or there used to be life and they're just constantly looking for water. You know, water kind of produces some life here and maybe, maybe, just maybe, there's life out there. I show all this to you and maybe I ask you these questions about whether or not you've thought about aliens because I want you to think that in all of us, there is some kind of innate desire that we have to know what's beyond what we know here. We just have this gut feeling that there's got to be something. And whether you're a religious person or whether you're a scientifically minded person, doesn't matter. They're all seeming to look for something out there. And it really leads to this question, are we alone in the universe? That's the question that really every intelligent person 
thinks at some point. And maybe you've thought about it too. Uh, maybe you suppress this thought. Maybe you're a person who maybe didn't grow up very religious and you think, ah, you know, there's times where I think about that, but I do everything I can to kind of like stifle that desire because I don't want to think about that. Because that's a little too frightening to think that maybe there's something out there or maybe someone out there that might have some kind of play in what's happening here on earth. I want to tell you, that thought that there's something out there has been going on forever. Humans have been interacting with those thoughts, and Christians in particular have had an answer to what's out there. And I want to tell you tonight that I think it's the most logical answer to what is out there in the universe. And to do that, I want to show you and tell you a story of a guy named the Apostle Paul. You might know him. He was a person who knew Jesus after the resurrection, which might sound a little odd, but he's a person who met Jesus not before he was dead and resurrected, but he met him afterwards. So this is a very unique person who had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus sent him out to preach and to tell people about him. And this guy was very, very intelligent. So this is not a weirdo. This is a very intelligent person. I mean, some uh, intelligent people are weirdos, but he's a pretty normal person, but he had a very high intelligence. So much so that when he would travel around, there were different people that said, hey, we want you to speak to our group. And that happened here, if you know where that is. That's the city of Athens. The Areopagus is what it's called, where you've got that temple to Athena. Right next to it, there was a group of philosophers who would meet and they would talk. And if you know anything about the, the Greek god system, remember, they believed something was out there. They might not have had all the answers, but they at least said, there's got to be something beyond this world. And what they thought was, there's all these Greek gods, and you know them, Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite, and you know some of those names right there, because you watch Hercules as a kid, or uh, maybe you remember sixth grade mythology that you took in you know, all your classes, but you might recognize some of those names. Well, these were the names and the, the gods that they thought were controlling things. They didn't believe in one sovereign all-powerful God. They believed in multiple gods who were always fighting back and forth. But there were some very, very intelligent Greeks who started to question that. And they started to think if the laws of nature are the same in Greece as they are in Rome, as they are in Israel, as they are in Britain, they were starting to think, well, if the laws of nature are the same everywhere, that kind of makes it seem like there's one overarching power. And that was a debate they were having. So Paul stands up in this group, and he tells them about the gods they believe in and about a God that they don't believe in yet. Look what Paul says. This is Acts chapter 17, if you've got a Bible. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus with all these smart people ready to cast judgment on him, he stands and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So they had all these different idols and all these different altars to their gods, but they're like, well, we don't know if we know about all the gods, so let's just make an altar to whatever gods we don't know, and hopefully that'll make them happy. And Paul says, what you don't know, I will tell you about. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. I want to show you through all this, and I kind of made this point earlier, but the first thing, if you've got a note sheet that I want you to write down, is we all feel like there's something out there. Notice that Paul goes to this group and says, I perceive that you're very religious. These were smart people. They were intelligent. They were civilized. They were cultured. But they were still looking for answers beyond this world. We all feel like there's got to be something out there. Even if you're the most scientifically minded, materialistic person in this room, my bet is that you care about things like emotions and feelings and things that you can't measure. 
And maybe sometimes you stop and wonder, I wonder where that comes from. Now, I've heard that maybe all that is is a bunch of chemical imbalances in my brain, but it sure feels like more than that. Sure seems like more than that. It's hard to believe when you're interacting with a person who maybe if you have a loved one who dies to think, man, after they're dead, that's it? They're gone? They don't exist anymore? That's a weird, trippy thought. If you have someone close to you that dies, it's weird because you're like, what are they doing right now? And the closer you are to that person, the more it feels wrong and unsettling to think, oh no, they just ceased existing. So we all have these questions as we face life. I want to show you that these questions are old. They're as, they're as ancient as the Egyptians, right? These, I just pulled up some different pictures from worship that happened a long time ago. This is Egyptian worship. There were gods there. There were gods, um, these are the Aztec paintings about what was happening down in Central America. Right, this is kind of a little grosser what they did. But if you notice, there's this common theme is these people believe that there's some kind of gods or powers out there, and we know that we've done wrong, so we're going to try to make them happy. We're going to try to appease them. And people will do different things. The Egyptians worship their gods in one way. The Aztecs would use uh, sacrifice. Even today, there's different religious systems that if you go anywhere in the world, it doesn't matter what continent you're on. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter really their cultural background. Every culture has been religious. And they're searching for something. It's just interesting. Whether uh, I try to show all the different places, you got... Um, Central America, with these Aztecs, you have the Egyptians, you have the Hindus in, in India, and you've also got African, just tribal religions. What's common about all of them? There's all religion, right? They're, they're searching for something, right? So this concept is not something that's unique to you or me or Christians or your parents or people who believe the Bible. This is a universal thought that there's got to be something, whether you're talking about the leading scientist who's looking into aliens or you're talking to a Christian with a Bible we all believe there's something out there. Sometimes how this is brought about in today's culture is by something called meditation or even uh, something more step-by-step -step, uh, manifesting, if you ever heard about that. You'll see that on Instagram. Um, people are manifesting. What that means is that they're hoping that the universe is personal enough to take their thoughts and desires. They, they come up with things. They speak things out to the world, and they hope that those things come back to them. You see this on Instagram where people are like, oh, just manifesting having the perfect husband, manifesting, you know, going on this trip. I just want to be so rich. I'm just going to manifest it. I'm going to speak it out. Like, do you realize what that is? That's people seeking something outside their self to control the world. Like, that's believing in the universe as a divine power. It's just so interesting. A lot of times people who say this, they're like, well, I don't know if I believe in God, but I believe there's a higher power. I believe there's something out there. I just want you to notice what that is. That's an innate thing in all of us that says there's something more. Sometimes people today in New Age practices do this through using crystals or tarot cards or things like that. If you've ever um, dipped your toe into the occult, you'll know that there are people that are trying to find some connection with the universe. My point I'm trying to make here in this first thing is like, look, we just gotta be honest that people are searching for that. Doesn't matter if you're that or if you're you know, some kind of philosopher or, or a guy like this guy, Jordan Peterson, he's a famous person who used to be somewhat of a materialist, used to think that the world was just what's confined in it, but I just want you to see these things. He starts to change his position over time. I pulled some quotes from him. He's a thought leader uh, today. One of the things he said was, do I believe in God? I don't like that question, right? And he goes on to explain more. He says, people have asked me whether or not I believe in God. No, but I'm afraid he probably exists. That's a funny answer to that. He's not an atheist in the sense that he's saying, no, for sure, definitely not. But the more this guy thinks about it, the more it's like, yeah, I've never really believed in God, but you know, I'm kind of afraid that maybe he, he does exist. And he says, I decided 
that I would act as if God existed a long time ago. Just so interesting. From a person who doesn't really believe in God, over time he starts to change his position, so much so to where now he says, I'm not an atheist anymore because I don't look at the world that way anymore. I'm not a materialist anymore. Materialist is somebody who believes that the world is only comprised of the matter and the stuff therein. Like it's just chemicals and it's just rocks and it's just dust. That's all we are. He says, I don't believe that anymore. Whether you're a philosopher um, or a uh, podcaster, you got people like this who starts out his career saying, I think every single religion, every single one of them, that's Christianity, that's Islam, that's Judaism, I think they're all cults. I think they're all groups of power trying to persuade people to believe what they believe. Then, after a little bit of study, after a little bit more conversations, he starts saying stuff like this. He says, you know, science wants you to believe that it's all about measurement and reason. And if you allow them one big miracle, one miracle is the Big Bang. That all things come from the most preposterous idea ever, that everything came from nothing in one big miracle. Isn't that interesting? The more you study science, the more you understand what the very smartest people say about the beginning of the universe. His point here, and this guy's not a Christian, he's not a person that you should really look up to, right? But here's what he says. He says, these scientists that I believed all this time, they're like, yeah, you know, we're all about the measurement data. Just give us one miracle. Just just the creation of life at the beginning. And then we'll try to figure everything else after that. He's trying to say it's the most preposterous idea. That's why we kind of have this innate feeling that there's got to be something more out there. That's why Paul puts a finger on that. And he says, look, this is how it all happened. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You got to remember how offensive that was because he says, hey, he's the God of heaven and earth. Zeus is the God of heaven. Poseidon is the God of the sea. Different gods rule different things on earth. But he says there's one God who rules both realms, the heavens and the earth and the people therein. And this God doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Thing that you need to realize, point number two, I want you to know that God made you and everyone else. God made you, and he made everyone else. Every other person in this room is a creation of God made special in his image. And that's what Paul's first communicating. Before he talks about sin or judgment or other things that you think Christians talk about, he starts off by saying, there's a God who made you, and he made everyone else who's here. That's important. That's a foundational truth that you need to grasp. If we believe that something's out there, well, then something had to make us. Right? And that thing or person that made us, just to give you some sizes here, this is kind of interesting. Um, if you've ever seen those videos of kind of zooming out to see how big the world is and see how big the universe is, right? Up, up there on the, it goes one, two, three, four, just follow that progression. You see Earth and you think, okay, I can kind of visualize how big our Earth is. But then Earth, next to all those other planets, like, uh, you know, the planet that Kyle mentioned tonight on accident, Saturn, um, which if you're playing that game, by the way, it was Saturn. It was a picture of Saturn. Sorry. Uh, but there you go. Anyway, if you just see how big this universe gets and how small we get, piece by piece, the biggest becomes the smallest. And by the end, it's like, man, we are puny in this world. And what I'm trying to tell you is Paul is saying, hey, this God who made you and everything else, I want you to just picture for a second and have your mind blown about how big that God is bigger than you can comprehend, smarter than you can comprehend too. Even if you were to look down, that's kind of looking big picture. If you were to look under the microscope, 
so to speak, of the world that God made, what you'll find is in every single cell of any living being, you've got something called DNA. And this DNA is so complicated and complex, and in order for life to begin at any point, you need to have all that complexity all at the same time at the beginning. And this is what you can't answer. You're like, how did this come into being? Something, someone had to start that. Someone had to write the code of DNA. Even if you believe after that point, everything else just evolved on its own, you have to believe that something started it all. What I'm trying to tell you is God's word, other people, other Christians, even people who aren't Christians, you have to come back to the conclusion that there's a God who made you, and this God also made everyone else. Paul goes on, and he says, look, he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth. Right? If you know that, you're thinking, that's like Genesis 1 through 11, when God made mankind and told them to spread out. That was at the beginning of the Bible. He says, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That's very interesting. Something about nation building there. It's like God not only put mankind on earth, he was the, the one that directed people to walk where they walked. He's the one who said, go to Africa, go to Asia. It's like his leadership and guidance is what brought them there. How did people get to Australia? How did people pass the Bering Strait? Like those scientific questions, this actually gives the answer that, that God had them do that. Now, did God whisper to their ear and say, walk this way? I don't think so. But just like God guides all of us, God guided them to take over this world. And he allotted where they were going to be. Look what the purpose is. He says that they should seek God. Why did he put them where he put them? Why did God spread people out? Why did God want people all over the world? He wanted people to seek him. No matter where you come from, no matter your background, this says God wants you to seek him and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Now, there's a lot of people, even some of these Greeks, were very intelligent and they came up with ideas that were very similar to what the Bible teaches. Doesn't mean it's exactly the same, but you got really smart people who thought, like, you know what, this world has got to be made by one creator. This world's got to be controlled by some kind of one force. And God says, congratulations, you're starting to feel your way towards the truth here. He says, yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed, we are all his offspring. Being then God's offspring, that means God's children, we ought not to think that the divine being is of gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's like, look, you, when you think of God, if we're so amazing, if we're so complex, right? Um, not just you ladies, but you guys are complex too, right? Uh, we're complex. It's like, don't think that God's made of silver or gold then, right? Think about it. If you're more complex than the thing that made you, that doesn't make any sense, right? So this God can't be a God that's made of, of silver or gold just like they were bowing down to. So this God must be bigger than all of that. Third thing, if you notice, he says, um, you got these different poets he quotes. First of all, he, he quotes this guy named Epimenides uh, of Crete. Notice this, it's this poem about Zeus. Look at the last line. Paul just steals that quote, and that's why in your Bible it's got a quote around it. Um, it says, for in you, about Zeus, we live and move and have our being. Notice that, it's just very interesting. Uh, Paul takes that and says, look, even your own poets have said stuff about the divine, like, yeah, in God we live and move and have our being. Um, also, this guy, um, he wrote about Zeus too, and after praising Zeus for being this big, powerful God, he says, he says at the end, for we are indeed all his offspring. Right? So Paul just takes that and says, look, your own philosophers, your own smart people, they've said things that correspond with reality, the reality of God, and you need to know that 
you're, you're getting there, okay? So here's the next thing I want you to write down. Point number three, God decided to put you where you are. That's what Paul essentially says. There's a God, he made you, and he decided to put you where you are right now. That's why people have talked to you maybe before about uh, your life, who your parents are. It's not an accident. Where you live is not an accident. What time you were born, right? not time of day, but periods of history, it's not an accident. God made you and designed you and put you exactly where you are right now. And you need to remember, why did he say that God did that? The reason was so that you would seek God so that you may perhaps find him. That's why God puts you where you are right now. I want you to think about even your own family tree. How many different random things had to take place for your parents to meet? Oh, then think beyond that, not just your parents, your grandparents on both sides. So we got four couples. How many people had to meet at all these random chances? How many near-death experiences? How many uh, deaths and divorces and all these things took place in order that you would be born today? It is like a mind-blowing, staggering thing. Even if you think about all the details of your life, now multiply that out by all your ancestors who lived before. God's word says, you're here, and it's not an accident. This is all a part of God's bigger plan so that you would know him. That should blow your mind. That you being put on this earth, you living here in Orange County, you being here in the year 2023 as a high school student, that it's not an accident. But remember, why? Why? Keep driving back to that so that you would seek God. That's why he put you here. That's why you're sitting in these chairs tonight. That's why maybe you went to campus lunch today to school. That's why you've heard about this. That's why, frankly, for some of you, you've been going to this church your whole life. Why? So that you would seek God, that you would know him. He goes even further. He says, well, how do we know God? He says, well, the times of ignorance, God has overlooked. There's been a time of nations deciding what's best and what's right. And God has a certain lenience with them. He says, but those days are over. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands high school students in 2023 in Orange County, California, he commands you to repent. Repent, that's a Bible word. Maybe you don't know what that means. The word repent just means to turn. It means to change your whole course of life. It means to turn from your sin and your selfishness and whatever you are about and make your whole life about God. That's kind of a simple way of putting it. This should change your whole life. God wants you to repent. Just notice how he puts it. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. There's been people who did not hear this gospel. There's people who didn't ever hear about God and ever reached their way to God. But now God has come down through Jesus and he's preached this message. And now I'm preaching it to you and he calls you to repent. Point number four, God is calling you to repent of your sins. I can say that with 100% certainty. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to turn from your sin. He's calling you to turn from your selfishness. He's calling you to turn from your way of life. He's calling you to turn from thinking that you're in charge of your own life to turn to follow him, to do what he wants you to do. Sometimes we overcomplicate what repentance looks like. Some of you who grew up at our church, maybe you've been confused about this. You've wondered, have I repented? Have I repented? Well, my question is, have you turned? Is your life about you? right now? Is your life about making whatever decisions you want to make, or is it about God? This is a good test for us. If you've repented, well, then your life looks like, I want to follow God. I want to do what he says. You're not going to be perfect, but guess what? If you've repented, you're you're going to come back to God. You're going to do what he wants you to do. You're going to seek that in your heart. To repent means to make a U-turn, right? This is like the only safe thing to do. I mean, if you 
even take this further, you could imagine you could be in a very, very dangerous place on the road, and the only option is to turn around. You can't try to weave through traffic. You just have to make a U-turn. That's what God is saying. He's calling all men everywhere to repent. He's calling all people who are high school students to turn from their sin. He's calling you to do that. I can say that with 100% certainty. The God who made you and the God who made me and the God who made everything and everyone, he has a message for you tonight, and it's one word. It's to repent. That's what he wants. He wants you to turn from your sin. Notice what he says next. He says, why? Well, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he doesn't use Jesus' name there. He starts to talk about Jesus, but he's saying, here's why you need to repent. Here's why you need to turn around, because you are going to have a head-on collision with the righteous God. The righteous God who made you is not going to tolerate your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness. He's calling us to turn. The only safe option for you is to repent, because God is going to judge this world. He is going to judge every individual sinner who does not turn. He's going to judge them, because that's the right thing for God to do. And he warns them. Just like I warn you, I don't want any single person in this room to be judged by God. But I will tell you with 100% certainty, you will be judged by God if you don't repent. It's just, it's just natural. It's, just, it's exactly what God's word says, and you know that it's true. You can't keep living your life full of all the guilt and shame that you're doing, trying to dismiss it, trying to act like it's not a big deal. You know you are coming to a head-on collision, and the proof is every last one of us dies. We all are going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to have a funeral, or maybe you won't have a funeral. Maybe people will love you. Maybe nobody will care about you. But the point is, all of us are going to die with 100% certainty. And when we die, this God who made you and gave you this amazing life, some of you have better lives than others, but God gave you life. He gave you the amazing gift of life. He is going to require it of you, especially because you were one of the select few people on the planet that heard a clear message to repent. God is going to require it of you. Fifth thing, God is going to judge the world for sin. Just what it says here. I want to show you that the only safe place that you have is in repentance. It's turning from your sin. What Jesus did when he came to this earth, he says it here, that he came, that he lived, and that he was raised from the dead. That's the key thing that he says. When it says God's going to judge the world, it's interesting. Just like John 5 says, it's actually God using Jesus as the agent of judgment. So who is going to judge the world in the end? This says the man whom God has appointed. So who's going to be the direct person that judges people for their sin? It's Jesus. The Jesus who came to this earth. The Jesus who lived a perfect life. The Jesus who was so gentle and kind and healing. That Jesus is the one who is going to judge the world for sin. The only safe place is trusting him is repenting of your sin, turning to him. Jesus rose from the dead to defeat death and to prove to you that this is all going to happen. All these eyewitnesses saw Jesus after he died and he rose again. And they're like, we have to believe. Even people who didn't believe in him. Even people like the Apostle Paul who hated Jesus and hated the way. He encountered Jesus face to face and he had no choice. Even his own brothers, Jesus' own brothers, did not believe in him while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. Then he rose from the dead, and they had no choice because it's like, we know you died. We saw you die. We saw you crucified. Now you're fine. This is a miracle, and then you're going to believe what Jesus says after that. I want you to notice 
that a lot of us right now, maybe some of you who grew up in church, maybe some of you who are always here at True North, you've never repented and you know you've never repented and your life feels a lot like this. You've got guilt shackled around your ankle. You come into church, you come out of church, you wake up, you go to sleep, you go to school, and you are carrying around this load of guilt. Okay? This is a painful experience. And so, so much so that sometimes you don't even want to come to church. You don't even want to think about God because the guilt is really heavy. The good news of what Jesus says, the good news of what Paul says, and the good news of what I'm going to say to you is that that guilt can be completely taken away. That you don't have to live guilty for your sin anymore at all. The solution offered is that you would repent, that you would give it up, that you'd say, I'm not going to love the things that make me so guilty anymore. I'm going to stop holding on to these things because they're hurting me and they're hurting everybody else in my life. I need to get rid of these things because they're offensive to God. And you repent. And when you repent, God takes the shackles of the guilt off and he makes you go free. Some of you think that you don't want to become Christians because that's when you won't be free. I'll tell you right now, especially for a lot of you church kids, a lot of you freshmen, you need to know that this is the only thing that's going to set you free, is repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. All the things you're searching for, all the things that you're seeking, all the experiences you want to have, none of those are going to make you free. It's just going to make this stupid guilt thing bigger and bigger and bigger. And your only freedom is in Christ. And you will have freedom, perfect freedom, forgiveness of all your sins. He couldn't be more clear about that. I want you to notice that everybody who hears this message has some kind of response. What happened in this crowd, Paul, remember, speaks to a bunch of people that don't have much common ground. He's speaking to these Greek philosophers who are like, wait, 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 God, like I've never read the Bible before. I don't know anything you're talking about. One God, and we believe in multiple gods, right? So you would assume that there'd be some pushback to what Paul says. Notice what they push back against. He says, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, when they heard that there's some man who died and rose again, some mocked which is the response that some of you have to this, to what your parents say, perhaps to what you've heard me say before, to what you've heard Christians say, you've mocked. Mocking means to see something and to ridicule or to laugh at it, to turn to your neighbor, to joke about it and say, how stupid is that? He says, well, a lot of people mocked, right? And that makes sense. You're talking about the resurrection of the dead. That's an amazing thing. Some mocked, but others said, very important, we will hear you again about this. Are those people becoming Christians? No. They're not becoming Christians. They didn't repent on day one, but they are saying, you know what? I need to think about this more because I've not thought about this before. I want to hear, I want to hear about this again. The third group, look what he says. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. There's a third group. So first group mocks. Second group is interested. Third group believes in Jesus. They join Paul and they believe in him, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite. Where was he speaking? The Areopagus. So the Areopagite, who does that mean? That means he was one of these very smart, very intelligent philosophers who after a couple conversations with Paul was so convinced God prepared this guy and he became a Christian. And he stopped being an Areopagite and he started being a follower of Christ. And also a woman named Damaris and others with them. So it's just interesting. The very first time they hear about this, they are interested and they come back, and guess what? They start following. We don't know if maybe there were some who said, we want to hear more about this, right? And then they started believing later. But either way, it took a little bit of conversation, a little bit of time, but then they said, nope, I'm going to be all in on this. I'm going to repent. 
want you, last thing, I want you to decide how you're going to respond. Decide how you're going to respond. Because I think most of us are going to fall into one of these three categories. Some of you, you hear this message. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe this is the first time. Maybe you just can't believe that someone would die and rise again. Maybe you just can't believe that there's some creator, personal God. What do you think? What group am I in? Are you the mocker? Maybe not interested, laughing about how dumb you think all this is? Two, you might be interested. You might be a person who says, I've never really considered this. I need to think more about this. I need to talk to someone about this. Maybe someone who does believe this. I might get some of my questions answered. Haven't made up my mind yet. That's great. Group three are the people who believe, people who repent of their sins, decide to become Christians, and follow God wherever he leads. Here's the problem. Some of you, especially you church kids, let me pick on you for a second, you've been in group two for a long time. Maybe you've even acted like, maybe I just got more questions, I've got more questions. And maybe you do have questions, but some of you don't have questions, you just don't want to repent. A lot of you, perhaps, are there. Others of you were in group number two for a long time. And maybe you're a believer now. Maybe you are in group three. Because you finally said, I just got, I got to repent. I keep fighting against God. I, I think the reason I don't want to follow God is because I have all these other things that I want to do that I think God might not let me do. And God says, no, no. Following me, living for me is the only safe place. That's the only thing that's going to make me happy. I want you to realize that if you're in group number one, I want you to move to group number two. Right? Some of you who've mocked before, I want you to say, you know what? I'm going to be interested. If you're in group number two and you've been there for a long time, just know that if you don't move to group number three, you are making a decision to reject what Jesus is saying. And I don't know if you know how offers work. You can only reject offers for so long. At some point, those offers get rescinded, and they're no longer on the table. For each and every one of us, the offer of repentance for forgiveness of sins is only on the table for a short amount of time. It's there, and then God will take it away. You're not going to get a second chance after you die. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed to man once to die, then comes the judgment. What I want tonight to be for some of you who have been in group two for a long time, I want you to say, you know what? I just need to repent. I'm convinced I just need to, I need to turn. What does that look like? It's just, it's very simple. Is you say, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. You pray to God. You ask him for forgiveness. You say, I'm going to repent. I want to turn from all my sin. I just want to do what you want me to do. And some of you, who maybe have never heard this, and you just think, okay, I want to talk about this. I want to ask more questions. That's awesome. That's why we have all this free food. That's why we invited you tonight. It's because we want you to just at least move to group number two and think about this. And we're going to pray that you move into group three. You in the universe, aliens, God, a lot of different things tonight. I want you to remember, and all this as I call the band up, we're going to sing one more song, and after that, I want to talk about this with you guys. We're going to break up into some small groups and just discuss this, whether you're group one, group two, or group three. I want you to know that Jesus is able to save you. Everyone who repents of their sins tonight, God will save completely. So let me pray that God would help us do that. God, we recognize you right now as the one who made everything. We recognize you as the one who created all of us. You have a personal care for all of us. We also recognize that you're the one who calls us to repent and to turn. God, I pray that you would open a door of repentance for salvation for these people. Pray that some of them who've been pushing it off for so long would tonight finally just give up and, and surrender to you. Pray for others who've never really thought about this, that they would join that second group of people who's interested and who wants to learn more. Pray that you would help us answer those questions. 
and that we would follow you. We know that's what's best for us. That's what's best for the world. And I pray that you would extend that grace to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.